Hey, good morning. I'm glad you're here, and um, thank you for making the extra effort this morning. And uh, I know we went through a little extra coffee today. I don't know if we did or not, but it's, it's just funny how time change weekend works. Some of us are a little more deliberate about it all, and then other people will figure it out sometime later today. And they're, yeah. Hey, we are deep into a teaching series here on My Sundays. This is, I think, part eight, if I'm counting right. Uh, We've been talking about the kingdom of God, and we started in Matthew 4, where Jesus kind of arrives on the scene and launches his public ministry and announces that the kingdom of God is arriving. And since then, we've been in chapter 5, and in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, or what I like to call Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way of being human in the broken reality of the kingdom of God. It's really about God's value system in his kingdom. So that's what we've been talking about. So we've talked about things like salt and light. We've talked about God's purpose in our circumstances. We've talked about how to approach the scripture, especially the Old Testament in light of Jesus coming. Uh, Last time we talked about, uh, it was just some fluffy stuff like anger, lust, objectification, divorce, and remarriage. So uh, that was was, uh, just, you know, good time. And uh, so I figure, hey, we can tackle anything after that one. So if, any, if you've missed any of these messages so far, I really encourage you to go back and fill the gaps because we are working our way through the entire Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you can listen from your computer on our media player on our website. Uh, of course, we recommend you subscribe to our podcast and it just shows up on your device automatically uh, in your feed every Monday or Tuesday whenever we get it posted. And you never have to miss any of the teaching content here on Sundays. And I think this is really important as we're teaching through a passage of Scripture to get the whole context. And so uh, here we are in the Sermon on the Mount and we don't want to skip over any sections because they're all really, really important uh, when it comes to life in the kingdom. So we said a few weeks ago that essentially... Jesus is looking for a different kind of righteousness, something other than righteousness based on behavior, but a righteousness that emanates from a heart that's been transformed by Jesus, a heart whose driving motivation is love. And he said, without that kind of transformation, without that kind of righteousness, there's no way for us to experience the new reality of his kingdom. So for the second half of chapter 5, he lays out six case studies of this new kind of righteousness at a deeper level, that, he, that, that righteousness that he's after. So, and I forewarn you, we're, we're well into this now, so you know this is nitty-gritty stuff. And it's human, and it's honest. And that's where we find this teaching like we did last time on anger and lust and divorce. And the thing about a series like this is just a little inside baseball, you can kind of read ahead and have a good idea of what we're going to be talking about somewhere in the future if you can only figure out who's preaching on a given Sunday, which is always a mystery. So, uh, but you can read ahead and you can know like, oh, yeah, maybe I want in on that or maybe I should just avoid that one because that's going to be, you know, Jesus speaking truth. So um, that's where we've been, where we're going. Um, I think we should pause and pray before we get into scripture. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning. Ask that you uh, quiet our hearts and clear our minds. May we be uh, free from distractions and just be able to concentrate and focus on the things you have for us today. May our hearts be open for that. May we apply the things that uh, we're hearing and the truth that we need to settle into and lean into. May it find a place in our hearts. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read a few verses starting at verse 33. This is Jesus speaking. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, 
for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Well, after these earlier verses we did a couple weeks ago about anger, lust, objectification, divorce, remarriage, this should be easy enough, right? I mean, uh, when I think about how many oaths I took this week, when I think about that, the total comes to about zero, right? I don't know about you or what you do for work or how many oaths you're required to take in the course of a week, but I'm feeling like this is a pretty good, uh, this is going to be good teaching for me and I can just sit back and relax on this because uh, when I think about it, I've actually uh, taken three oaths in my whole life. And first of all, the vows at my marriage ceremony were not an oath, just so in case you're like, oh, what about that one? No, that's a covenant. That's a different deal. But I, I could think of three oaths that I've taken. So, and one of them wasn't even really an oath. It was an affirmation. So let's get really, really technical. Uh, when I was about 15, I, uh, I was sued in small claims court, because who hasn't at 15? And because... Uh, <laughs> Apparently, or should I say allegedly, uh, a rock flew out from a lawnmower that I was using and damaged a passing car. So I had to go to court at 15 years old. I don't know what you were doing at 15, but uh, I had to appear at the Annapolis Royal Courthouse. There's a picture of it. Uh, this is the oldest courthouse still in use in Canada. Uh, it was built in 1837. 1837, which actually in this particular town was relatively new construction. Um, and if you only knew, if you've been there. So uh, just to make things difficult at this uh, court appearance, and, and I would say also maybe because, if you know my story, maybe because of an overly uh, legalistic and uh, literal interpretation of verses like these, when I was called to the witness stand, I refused to take the oath uh, or of, sworn of sworn testimony. I don't know if you've ever done that in a court of law, but it's a whole lot of fun. And... Uh, <laughs> And I know you're supposed to be intimidated by the whole thing, but it's just a guy up there with a black dress on. So I, I just thought, well, he's just a person like me, except he's wearing a black dress. So I wasn't that, I just insisted, I, I, I can't, out of religious objection, I can't take an oath. I need to take uh, an, offer, an affirmation, which, by the way, is a thing. Did you know that? It is a thing. No one's required to take an oath of sworn testimony. There's an affirmation uh, that you can take as well. So it did take a while for the clerk of the court, small claims court, in Annapolis, Royal Nova Scotia, year-round population, 700 people. Took a while for her to find the affirmation, but that stall tactic was kind of amusing and unnecessary and honestly kind of wasted the court's time, uh, which was no big deal because the entire, entire case was a waste of the court's time. And I, I, although I did take a, a, a lifelong lesson out of it, uh, when the judge asked the uh, plaintiff, uh, if he was just doing this for money or if he needed the money or if he cared about the money. And uh, the plaintiff's response was, Judge, I have so little money. I'm telling you, if you were selling a goose for a dollar, I couldn't buy a feather. And I thought that was appropriate in a court of law to make a statement like that. So anyway, I, just, that was, um, that, I was 15. I remember that statement. So anyway, it was a good time. Uh, there was a, so anyway, that was one time that, and then the judge dismissed the case. So... Um, there was another time I was giving uh, sworn testimony, and I just gave in, took the, uh, took the traditional oath, because, you know, I just did. Then I've taken the oath of citizenship at my naturalization ceremony. That was in 2002, which, um, if it, it, it's significantly, it's kind of freaked me out a little bit, it's significantly longer and kind of scarier than both the armed forces oath and the president's oath of office. It's actually longer than that. And uh, so 
so this idea of swearing an oath is not an unknown practice, right? Uh, it's generally accepted as something that is just part of certain rules and procedures in the civilized society where we are governed by law. So after pushing through the teaching a couple weeks ago uh, these, on these previous verses, I thought this will be nice just to kind of teach on something a little more straightforward, something a little less, you know, in our backyard. We're familiar with it. We don't deal with it every week, so whatever. I thought that until I got into the text. So with that being said, here's what I've discovered about the Sermon on the Mount. There's no passage in there where we just kind of get to sit back and relax. So what we're going to do is we're going to do what we've done in this series so far and take it line by line. We're going to get to the heart of what Jesus is talking about. So I'm going to go back and read these verses just a bit at a time. So verse 33 again. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. Now remember, when a rabbi says you've heard, it means he's about to quote the Bible. He's about to quote the Old Testament, something from the law or the prophet, something that his listeners were familiar with. So that's what he's doing. And then he gives his interpretation uh, or his insight into the passage. So as his listeners were discovering, Jesus' application and Jesus' insights were often in contrast to the things that other teachers had said and were saying. So in the previous uh, verses, Jesus is talking about sex. And he, if you missed that message, uh, you really should go check that one out. And, and so in the previous verses, he's talking about lust and sexual gratification and objectification and divorce. But in these verses, he's moving into the idea of language or speech. This is actually a really big deal because the people who were listening were people who lived in a culture that was a culture of oral tradition. The whole culture revolved around language and, and in a world where there were no signatures, there were no bank accounts, there, most business deals were enacted verbally between two people, keeping your word had huge implications. So if someone went back on their word, let's say you could, you could then go back to the guy and say, you know, he did this or he didn't do what he said he was going to do, and someone else would say, but there's no evidence of that, you can't prove that. Now today we have all kinds of legal documents, right? Have you ever bought a piece of property, for instance? Ever, how many of you have ever bought a piece of property? So you know what I'm talking about. Uh, or how many of you ever opened, let's say, a new cell phone account? It's right up there with closing on a mortgage, right? Or even worse, adopted a pet, all right? So, but in Jesus' culture, it didn't work this way. So all that to say that the community's welfare as a whole was dependent upon the trustworthiness of what the people within the community were speaking. So the people who were listening to Jesus, who are sitting on that hillside, would have understood his, that context and understood the process he was speaking of because it carried so much weight. So he goes on to say, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. So in the Sermon on the Mount so far, Jesus has largely been quoting from what we call the Ten Commandments. Moses didn't call them that, Jesus didn't call them that, but we know them as the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, things like do not murder, do not commit adultery. But for this one... There isn't an exact text that he's working from. It's more of like a combination of multiple verses all through the Torah in places like Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 23 and even Psalm 50. So culturally, to not fulfill a vow was a pretty shameful thing and was considered by the religious leaders to be unrighteous. Keep reading, verse 34. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. So let's just stop there and dissect this a little bit. Because remember, Jesus' approach so far in this teaching has been to say, well, here's what you think this means, but I'm here to tell you there's a better way. Here's what this means in my kingdom. 
So he says, do not swear an oath at all. So like after hundreds of years of fine-tuning this system, of getting people to keep their word by swearing oaths, something that had become the cultural norm, Jesus simply says in one breath, be done with all of that. Not only should you not make an oath, but you should do away with the whole system altogether. And again, like a lot of his teaching, it sounds like and feels like he's scrapping the scripture, right? Because the scripture speaks to this, like he's disrespecting and disobeying the Torah, the law. But in reality, he's raising the standard again. It's like he's turning up the volume. Again, remember in this teaching, Jesus is all about heart posture. We said that a couple weeks ago, and we keep coming back to this. Jesus was well aware that people were capable of religious practice that was nothing more than lip service. Jesus knew that oaths were not evidence of a pure heart. They weren't really a safeguard for the truth. An oath was still able to conceal what was really in the heart, the motive of the individual. And this is what Jesus is getting at here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's what he's directing our attention to. He knew that an oath didn't solve the problem of truth-telling, that an oath still could be laced with dishonesty or embellishment or omission. So instead of improving that system that they were familiar with, he calls his listeners and he calls us to live in a different way altogether, to see a whole new way of relating to other people out of a place of honor and truth and ruthless integrity. Here's the thing that's easy for us to overlook in a passage like this just like the other commands, Jesus knew that obedience would come at a great cost for many of his disciples. So stay with me. I know it's easy when we look at a text like this that seems to be speaking exclusively to another time or another culture to kind of dismiss ourselves from the application of the text, right? But Because we don't swear oaths very often. We don't even think of this. It's just, it, this is an unusual, we think of this as an, it, well, for us, it's an unusual circumstance to swear an oath. But just like everything Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, it's very clear to me that his prohibition has implications for us in our time and in our culture as well. And maybe it looks something like this. And I'm convinced that Jesus is unwavering in his call for us to be people of the truth. So much so that like him, even if we were in a court of law, we wouldn't have to take an oath to cause us to speak the truth because we are known by the integrity of our word. That's the heart of his teaching here. Let's keep reading. Verse 34, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. So, yes, or appear, right? So, uh, Jesus just got done, thank you, just got done telling people that they're, uh, they're not to swear oaths at all, and they're like, so wait a minute, so you're like dismantling this whole system that we've kind of perfected? Is that what you're doing? And he's like, right, because that's what I came to do. And he goes on to tell them that they're not to swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or even by their own head. What does this mean? What's he saying here? Well, the people of the day knew what he was referring to, and they, that, they knew that when they were swearing or when they were taking an oath, when they did that, they were inviting judgment. They were inviting accountability. And, and come to find out, not a, light, not a lot of people then liked being judged by God. So they decided to choose things that were less damning and less, shall we use the word, smiteable 
Okay? You know what I mean? So if, I'm not going to swear by God's name because he could get me. So I'm going to swear by something less damning. But Jesus reminds them that God's presence is everywhere. And he bears witness to every vow and every oath and every commitment that you make. And he cares deeply about the integrity of your word. So I'm guessing the people there are thinking, okay, then great, Jesus. So what are we supposed to do? Verse 37, he says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So, okay, I don't know about you, um, but some people, some people really want to please other people, to wow them, right? We want them to think that we're intelligent and funny, and ultimately we want them to think highly of us. I mean, some people feel this way, not but even in this room, you don't give a care, but, uh, right? So sometimes we tell stories, and sometimes we embellish a little. And sometimes we omit the ugly so that the pretty and the nice and the put together is what people actually see. And sometimes we outright lie and we embellish because it makes us look stronger or better or like we have it all together. But Jesus is saying that even that act of deception or manipulation is in fact sinful, is destructive every single time. And evil, we know as followers of Jesus, has no place in the kingdom of God. Jesus is calling us to be people of integrity, people who don't need to swear or to make an oath, people who are faithful, not only to our word, but to loving God and to loving others in a way that leaves no room for deception or manipulation. So I've been thinking about the, the life of Jesus um, in light of his kingdom teaching here in the Sermon on the Mountain as counterintuitive and countercultural and sometimes even counter-church culture, it seems to be, I'm struck by the reality that Jesus did and has done everything that he said he would do and everything that he says we should do. So he has incredible moral authority on this topic. So anyway, I think we've got two responses to this part of the text. First one is tell the truth. (laughs) Sounds easy enough, right? But I mean like all the time. In every setting, every scenario, every medium, whatever. Because if we're going to be serious about obeying Jesus in his call right here to life in his kingdom, then that's going to take some work and some effort, especially in light of the world that we live in. So think about this. This is just an example. I'm going to bring it way down here where we all live. We live in a time and a place where curating our image is an art form. Social media is not simply a place to connect with the world. It's become a breeding ground for lies. And, and I'm not talking about the blatant kind that we all know exists, the bl- clickbait stuff. We, all, we get that. We see right through that, right? I'm talking about the kind of lying that's found in embellishment and omission and name-dropping. And I don't know about you, but the temptation for me is to let other people believe that I'm living my best life now, right? When it comes to Facebook and Instagram, we're all living our best life now. Here's the issue. Sometimes living my best life, at least in the view of other people as other people perceive me, often outweighs my ability to be genuinely honest with people. So think about, here's an example. Think about how we post selfies. You're like, oh, selfies. Oh, I know who you are. I see them. We all are guilty, okay? Six filters, four angles, 20 expressions later, we're good to go, kind of, right? Curation of our images at our fingertips. 
And I'm not saying, oh, cool, like that. Nice. Um, I'm not, no, there was really nothing on there. I'm not saying, and I, I'm not anti-social media at all, because I love the, the positive parts of social media. I think it's a great tool. Um, what I'm cautioning us about is the form of communication that fabricates far more than it is honest. So let's call it what it is. Facebook and Instagram is where we most often fall into the illusion of dishonesty, which is, in the long run, robs us of our integrity, and uh, because from there, we know it builds and spills over into other areas of our life. So if we're willing, willing to embellish on social media, then we will embellish and eventually lie in other areas of our lives. So I, I think it's easy to cut corners with our integrity, right? Because we believe, like, some of these things that they they aren't really doing any harm anyway, right? And that's where the rub is. Because all of us have experienced the pain of being lied to by someone we trusted. Of having the truth twisted or omitted. Of being manipulated by someone else for their gain, big or small. And all of us at one time or another have experienced the weight of lies and lying. We know how it perverts the truth, which leads to a place of chaos and confusion and in a mess of relational problems because it goes to the matter of trust. And then it be, just becomes difficult for us to trust anyone. Here's something. Lies are the greatest weapon that the enemy uses to maximize trauma and distort someone's identity. Then you to, I was going to repeat it, but it's on the screen, so I'll just let you read it. Here's why I know this is true. A lie can be told for so long. A lie can be believed for so long that we actually begin to live into the reality of that lie. Over and above the reality that's even before our eyes. Just like it always is with Jesus, there's more to this story. So I believe that Jesus is calling us to tell the truth with our whole lives. Because he knows better than we do that. When we do that, it becomes a place where trust is built and where intimacy is cultivated. And, and so many of us are missing out on trust and intimacy, not only with God, but with other people, the people in our lives who are important to us, who are dear to us. And sometimes it's because we've mishandled the truth or we've not been willing to tell the truth. And I think Jesus, all through this teaching, just keeps telling us, I, I, know, I, know, I know better than you, first of all. If we're talking about human flourishing, how to, a better way to be human, I know better than you do. And this is more than just a set of rules. Where, you know, he's like, I'm getting to the heart behind the rules, which is really generous of him, I think. He's saying there's a better way to live. My kingdom, the way of my kingdom, is a place for you to flourish as a human. So I think there's a call to, to tell the truth, and then I think there's a call to live the truth. So another way to say this is to just live intentionally, which means that we press into honesty and we press into faithfulness even when it costs us something. And it will almost always cost you something. We tell the whole truth with our whole lies. It means we're going to do what we say we're going to do. We're going to do it when we say we're going to do it. We show up when we say we will and we follow through because our word is good. 
I mean, aren't we trying to become more like our rabbi king of the kingdom that we're living in? Isn't that what we're wanting to pursue? And we believe at the heart of all that he's teaching us is that his words lead us to life, which means we, we uh, want to become people who are trustworthy, who are faithful, who are full of integrity, people whose word actually means something to other people. We have to become people who can be honest with others because we've first been honest with God. What we say, what we do, when we show up, how we show up, how we speak, where we follow through, what we give, what we say we're going to give, they're, they're all connected to being people of our word, people of integrity to bring people and point people to Jesus. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is like it, love others. And here, as he keeps saying in this sermon that we are sitting in here over and over and over, he calls us to love God better, to tell him the whole truth, to tell others the whole truth, to love others better. That's the roadmap to flourishing in his kingdom. And a lot of people in a lot of churches, and probably even in our church, we sit here Sunday after Sunday and are kind of in bondage to some lies. Because we've been lying for years. We've been lying about ourselves. Maybe lying about all kinds of things, and we've been believing a lie. Been believing maybe multiple lies. Lies that were spoken over us somewhere in our past, maybe in our family of origin. Because of all that, we've been in bondage. And I think what Jesus is saying to us is really powerful that we don't have to do life like that anymore. That we don't have to live in hiding anymore. Can you imagine? No more hiding, no more avoiding. No more embellishing. No more managing the image that people have of you. Remember back a few months ago in the Emotionally Healthy series we did, all that, most of all last year, we talked about narrative scripts and identifying the narrative scripts that we are living into and determine, determining whether or not they're even true and exposing lies for what they are and breaking through the stronghold of lies in your life. So Jesus is saying there's a better way to live. So what would it look like? if we were people where all of us decided to tell the truth, to tell the truth to God and to tell the truth to one another. Well, the call of Jesus here is simply to do away with lying. And so it's not only to tell the truth and to stick to our word, but it's to not use words to manipulate other people, especially to manipulate one, uh, another person for your own benefit. And, and I, don't, I don't want us to be overwhelmed or defeated by this teaching. I want us to be encouraged. This is not an empty invitation that Jesus is extending to us. Because it's in this call that Jesus is declaring it's possible for us to be free. To live in a space where we don't have, we don't have regrets. To live in a space where we don't have to do image management or self-preservation or self-condemnation for that matter. This is a call to freedom. It's a call to life to the full. And every time Jesus talks about his kingdom and he teaches about his kingdom, he's saying, I have something so much better than anything that you've known or imagined. So the question is, what will we do with that? Will we embrace his kingdom values or will we just keep working to build our own kingdom? Let's keep reading, verse 38. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. How many of you ever heard that? I'm just curious. How many of you have ever heard that expression? Eye for eye, tooth, okay? Verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. 
If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay. The world that we call home is chock full of violence. Have you noticed? This is the story of humanity. This is not new to the 21st century. Okay? So into a world full of violence, enter Jesus of Nazareth. What exactly does he have to say about that? Let's work through this line by line, because this is really interesting, to me anyway, I hope it is to you. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, so there again, you've heard this, you're familiar with this, then a quote, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, this is a quote of a command that we read not once, not even twice, but three times in the Torah. In Exodus 21, it says, so get this, if there's serious injury, you are to take life for life. Okay, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, then it goes on, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Very specific. Leviticus 24, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Again in Deuteronomy 19, show no pity. Life, that's what it says, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So let's be honest, this sounds pretty barbaric, right? It's like, what in the world were people thinking? But think about it. To this day, if somebody hits you, what's a natural thing to do? Hit them back. To get even. Or better yet, maybe just one-up them just a little bit. Just a little. The bent of the human condition is not towards justice. It is toward revenge. The sooner we come to grips with that about ourselves, the clearer this, this teaching becomes. This is called lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. And to this day, it's a key facet of our justice system. Here's, why this, here's, here's the context. In two millennia BC, or whenever this was first around, it was way ahead of its time. It was progressive and humane, the Torah was in comparison to what had been happening all around the world. So Jesus takes this command and he sets it aside. And he basically, he's basically saying, okay, that was then, because you've heard it said, and this is now. Because in all the other examples, and we're on example five out of six now in Matthew chapter five, of the way of Jesus in action. In all the other examples, Jesus takes a command and he kind of takes it a step further. But in this one, there's a twist in that he sets the whole thing aside. And essentially says, says, this has a place in the legal system, sure, but it's no longer, it no longer has a place in the life of my followers and life in my kingdom. My followers are to be a city on a hill, to be the light to the world, to put on display a whole new way to be human. So why would Jesus set this command aside after so long? Well, all sorts of reasons. Here's the one I think is at the top of the list. Because at best, all the law could do was keep violence in check to rein it in, if that. Because as a general rule, violence begets more violence. It feeds on its own energy. It's like a wildfire. So this is biblical theology and psychology and sociology, and it's also common sense. Okay? 
theologians and sociologists talk about the myth of redemptive violence, which is a myth, but it's kind of a basis of modern society. The myth is that the best way to fight violence is with more violence, but in reality, violence always escalates. It feeds on its own energy, and it makes a bad problem worse. So uh, what does Jesus have in mind? Verse 39 says, you've heard, but I tell you. So here's what you think a command means. Here's what it actually means. Do not resist an evil person. So Jesus is not saying, hey, just roll over and play dead. That's not what he's saying. One lexicon offers this definition on this word that's translated resist. That means to engage in revengeful or violent retaliation. So you could translate it, do not take revenge on, do not retaliate revengefully, do not retaliate with violence. N.T. Wright translated it this way, do not use violence to resist evil. So responding to violence with violence is simply perpetrating the cycle of violence. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. This teaching from Jesus is picked up on throughout the New Testament, and here are a couple examples that I love. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, did you catch that? First century Rome, Christians in first century Rome. If you aren't sure of the significance of that, just do a little, uh, little Google search on that. He says, bless those who persecute you. So it's not like, if you happen to be persecuted, here, nope, this was, this was their life. So since you're being persecuted, bless those who persecute you. That's language like right out of the Beatitudes, right out of the word, the mouth of Jesus. Bless and do not curse. This is in Romans 12. Live in harmony with one another. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow. This is a whole new way to be human. Here's another one from the Apostle Peter in his letter in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2. For it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. We get in the picture? Because you're like, yeah, but what about eye for eye, tooth for tooth, arm for arm, hand for hand, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, life for life? That was meant to limit the punishment. Because the common practice was, you steal from me, I kill you, and take all your stuff. This was about just punishment. That's what the law was about. It wasn't about, oh, I get to do this to this person. It was about keeping you from doing more. Over and over, the teachers of the way of Jesus claim that the best way to fight violence is not with more violence. The best way to fight evil or cruelty or shame or criticism or a mean comment is not with more of the same. But rather, and catch this phrase, because I'm going to use this, 
self-sacrificial, cross-shaped enemy love. That's what he's calling us to. We absorb that evil into yourself. And in doing so, this is the example of Jesus. The hope is that you stop evil dead in its tracks and you overcome evil, not with evil, but with good. So, thankfully, Jesus lays out some examples here uh, of how to do this. So, uh, all, we're going to try to fly through this here in the next 10 minutes. All four are right out of the first century world, so we have to transpose a little bit into our 21st century world. So, first, look at the, first, uh, the second half of verse 39. It says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So, it's, it's very uh, intentional that Jesus says specifically the right cheek. He's not talking about a punch. Because if you know anything about fighting, not that I do, I read about this one time, but that's not actually true. I was one, I was, anyway, yeah, I remember, I remember my dad had a, two pair of boxing gloves when Drew and I were kids and we're like, show us how to use these. And then I took one punch to the nose and that was the end of that. <laughs> just, just throwing that out for you. So, um, bleed quickly. So anyway. He's not talking about a punch. The fact that Jesus says right cheek implies that he's talking about a backhanded slap. And Jesus is living in an honor-shame society. The backhanded slap was one of the most egregious insults to the dignity of a person. This is what a master would do to his slave. This is what the head of a household would do to a woman or to a child. I'm not saying that's right at all. I'm just saying it was culturally accepted. It was a superior in that culture to an inferior So a superior comes at you with a backhanded slap. You have two options. Option A is flight, right? You you can't really run away, so the option is you, you roll over and play dead. Play the victim, take it. Option B is you fight back and probably get beaten to a pulp. But Jesus is asking, what if there's an option C? This is what Jesus is offering all through the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus has in mind here is you turn him the other cheek. So I'm looking at my attacker as an equal, not as slave to master, as you know, inferior to superior, but I'm looking at him now as an equal. So now if he wants to hit me again, what's he have to do? He has to punch me and I might die, or he might not punch me because instead my bold, courageous act might expose his sense of superiority and might bring about a change in his heart or at least a change in his mind. That's example number one. Secondly, look at verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. I love this one. So now we're back in the courtroom. Of course, we've taken the affirmation. And uh, you're, in the, you're in the middle of a lawsuit, and your adversary wants to take everything from you, And this wouldn't have been an exaggeration in their dealings with the Romans. And he wants to take everything from you, including the shirt off your back. So you probably heard this. And in the first century, a Jewish man wore two garments, an inner garment, which the NIV here translates shirt. But don't think T-shirt. Think think like first century, right? Which unless you're really poor, you would have more than one shirt, more than one inner garment. So what's a big deal? But then you have an outer garment, And you probably owned one of those. The NIV here translates a coat, which is more like a robe that you would wear over your inner garment. And then listen, you would use that as your blanket at night. So for this reason, it was actually illegal under Jewish law to take another person's coat or they might freeze to death. So here's the scenario. You're in the courtroom. Your adversary is after all that you have. What do you do? Option A, flight. You just give in, give him the shirt off your back. 
You walk away bitter, angry, upset. He's the oppressor, you're the oppressed. Option B is you fight it, you lawyer up, you call 1-800-CALL-JOE, and you go after his shirt. And again, Jesus says, what if there's an option C? What if there's a third way forward? And honestly, when you follow this all the way through, the option Jesus is offering is kind of funny. So in context, he's actually suggesting that right in the middle of the courtroom, before the court, the judge, and everybody, you go ahead and just strip naked. Hand over your shirt, hand over your coat, stand there naked in the middle of a conservative religious Jewish courtroom. While on the surface it might look like you're the one who's gone nuts and lost your dignity, in truth, you're the one who made the decision. You made the decision to give away all your clothes. He wasn't even asking for that. You've taken the higher road. And by this extreme act, you might expose, pun intended, you might expose his greed and ruthlessness and oppression and evil. And in an honor-shame society, you might call out your adversary in public and in doing so, break the chain of evil. Example number three, verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So the scenario here is about a Roman a military officer. They understood that. So first century Israel was Rome, under Roman occupation. There were Roman soldiers all over the place. And under Roman law, a Roman soldier could force you to carry a load for him up to a mile. You had no choice about it. You just had to do it. So this is right out of Jesus' everyday life. So what do you do? Option A, flight. You just pick up the peg. You, you carry it. You glare at him the whole time. You, you, you're seething. You're bitter. It's just eating you up, but you do it, and after a mile there, I'm done, and I hate you. Option B, you fight back. So there's a group of uh, Jewish extremists. Uh, they were known as the Sakari. They carried a dagger inside their coat, and they would, they were, their tactic was to sneak up behind Roman soldiers in a crowd, stab them under the ribs, and melt back into the crowd. So there's that option. Just pull out your, your dagger. You know, fight it. But what if there's an option C? What if there's another way? So what if instead you're like, sure, let me carry your pack, and you get to the end of mile one, and you keep going of your own free will. And in doing so, you recapture your own dignity because you've made the decision. You're carrying his bag. You're no longer the oppressed. It's your decision. Now you are in charge of that decision, and you go the extra mile. Last example is about money. Verse 42, give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So you come across a, be a beggar on the street, or maybe in this case you're a landlord, a tenant, can't make rent, whatever the analogy is, what do you do? Option A, you give them whatever they ask for, even if it's not the best thing for them or for you. Option B is you just say no. You pull yourself up by the bootstraps. This is America. This is the land of opportunity. But by now we know that Jesus has an option C. What if instead you give to them, but you get out, give out of relationship? Not just generosity, as great as that is. Not just out of compassion, as important as that is. But it's more than that. You give out of relationship. And in doing so, you begin to break the chain of evil. So let me just be clear here. What Jesus is calling us to is not pacifism, as our culture defines pacifism. Okay? Not one of these four examples is passive. They all call for the follower of Jesus to do something, do something creative, do something surprising, do something wise, something courageous, something bold and risky, even to the threat of your own life on behalf of someone else. These are creative ways to respond to social injustice, but without using violence. That's why they're examples. I mean, they are examples to take us to the heart behind the commands. They're examples to spark our moral imagination, to get us thinking about 
creative responses to evil that are not violent because our imaginations are captive to violence because of the world we live in, because of the human condition, because of the way history books are written, because of the way news is presented. Our imaginations are captive and we struggle to break out of this fight or flight kind of paradigm. And Jesus' teaching, and even more so his life, is the folk, and its fulcrum point on the cross, breaks open a whole new horizon of possibilities of how to deal with evil and with evil people. So whatever you want to call it, the bottom line is violence is not the way of Jesus. Fighting evil with more evil is not the way of Jesus. Now, I realize that even followers of Jesus disagree on the implications of this, okay? So, like, are there situations where violence is unavoidable? Are there situations where it's the lesser of two evils? Are, and there's all kinds of debate, but here's what we need to get. With what all followers of Jesus uh, agree on is that to follow Jesus means you reject the fight or flight option and you look for a better option and you look for a creative, nonviolent solution. Some of the best moments, not only in church history, but in human history, have been when followers of Jesus took Jesus' teaching here seriously. Then again, what we all have to admit is that some of the worst moments in human history and the worst moments in church history have been when followers of Jesus found a way to explain this away or to write Jesus off or to set it aside or to explain it like, yeah, well, that was for then, but this is now. I think one of the best arguments to the idea of nonviolence, at least for us, is questions like, well, what about Hitler? What do we do about that? What about World War II? What if Christians in America refuse to fight? That's a legitimate question. And I don't know. It's a what if. It's hypothetical. Here's a counter question. What if Christians in Germany in the 1930s have refused to support Hitler? What if Christians in Germany in the 1930s and 40s have refused to fight for Hitler? What would have happened then? I don't know. But it's a really interesting to think about. My, it's, it's, I'm not even making a point there. I'm just saying think about it. Because my point is, High highs and low lows in church history and human history so much depends on whether or not we take Jesus' teaching here seriously. So it raises all kinds of questions, and I acknowledge that. Uh, Like, what about Hitler? That's just the beginning. Uh, What about self-defense? What if your own life is at stake? Is there a difference between violence and force? What about killing to save another person's life? What about killing to uh, protect your family from a home intruder in the middle of the night? Does it say anything or not about the role of the government? What about serving in the military or law enforcement? Is that like a whole other category? What about serving in political office where you might have to make a decision about using our military? How does that affect my voting? What about just war theory? Isn't that a thing? What about all that violence in the Old Testament? So just a few questions to get you started and then I'm gonna gonna be done here. So I'm gonna leave you with that. But when we start to take Jesus' teaching seriously, we ought to be asking some questions. It ought to cause us to ask what ifs. What about? I want to offer a few pastoral words for our church, okay? I've been praying about this for a while, knowing I'm going to be in this text, and I've been kind of wrestling with this for a few years, actually. But Because uh, for some of us, this is such an abstract concept. Because for some of us, it's like, well, this is interesting, but I never really thought about it because it's never really touched my life. For others, this is an intensely emotional conversation. It's an emotional trigger for some people. It triggers something from the past. It triggers a fear about the future. And I get that because the world can appear to be scary right now. 
For some people, it triggers anger. You know, how dare you even insinuate this idea? Don't you know people died so you could stand up there on a stage in a church and talk about Jesus? I get all that. I just, I just want us to acknowledge the wide range of emotions that teaching like this can bring to the surface. And I really want this to be a safe place to process the teachings of Jesus. And I really encourage you to spend time with one another over coffee or in a small group to engage with the teachings of Jesus because this is very much a one-way conversation. This is not a dialogue. This is a monologue. I acknowledge that. I really want us to seriously wrestle with the teachings of Jesus, to really take the Sermon on the Mount seriously as a manifesto for our lives in the kingdom of God. I'm not even asking you to agree with everything I say here. I'm just inviting you to wrestle with the teachings of Jesus, the example of Jesus, the writings in the New Testament, and all their implications for the way that we do life here and now in the here but not fully here kingdom of God. The band's going to come, the singer's going to come, we're going to get ready to play some music. You can come right now. Listen, in our pursuit of truth, in our exploring what the application of truth looks like, Listen, I'm just going to wait a minute because I know we've never seen the band go to the stage before. <laughs> it's amazing. I know it's just like, like it's choreographed. We practice this. It's so smooth. So anyway, in our pursuit of truth, in our exploring of what the application looks like, I want to call us to unity which I know is crazy because I'm struggling right now just to kind of have you here for just like 30 seconds. I want to call us to unity because I love this church so much. I love our leadership team. I love our amazing volunteers. I love what God is doing here. And I'm grateful for the, re- the season that we're in as a church right now. And listen, the enemy would love to use our readings of these difficult teachings of Jesus, of all things, to divide us. That is not God's heart. Even if we find ourselves landing in different places when it comes to the implications for our lives, maybe we have to agree to disagree, that's okay. Listen, but let's not let anything dismantle our unity because after all, it's unity that Jesus prayed for us and for all of his followers. And it's in unity that we experience the kingdom of God at its fullest. And it's only in unity that we're able to chase the mission that Jesus has left us with, this mission to love God, to love others, and to make disciples.